Welcome everybody to the final NDIS talk of the semester. Uh, joining us today is Professor Jeffrey Caliaferro. He's Professor of Political Science at Tufts University. He's got a bachelor's degree from Duke, his PhD from Harvard, and fellowships at the Nobel Institute and the Woodrow Wilson Center. Uh, he's the author of 11 book chapters, six articles, two edited volumes, and three books, one of which won the Jervis Schrader Award. And most recently, his books are Defending, Defriending Frenemies and a Neoclassical Realist Theory of International Politics. He's on the CIA's Historical Review Board and on the National Academy of Sciences Steering Committee, as well as numerous editorial boards. And also, fun fact, he's a first cousin once removed from George Taliaferro, the Indiana University football star, and the Jackie Robinson of the NFL. Please give a warm welcome to Professor Taliaferro. Over to you. Thank you, Professor Parent. It's a pleasure to join you this afternoon. I wish that I were in uh, South Bend, Indiana, but uh, it is a pleasure nonetheless to join you and to see so many familiar faces uh, in this Zoom window. Uh, this afternoon, I'd like to talk to you uh, about my project on alliance abandonment in post-war US foreign policy. And I'm gonna speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll open it up to questions and answers. Uh, we can also collect questions that may arise uh, in the chat. And if I can figure out how to advance the slide, ah, yes. So the structure of my talk is going to be as follows. First, I'm going to outline my research questions. Then I'll talk a little bit about my argument and how uh, it builds on my previous book project. I'll spend a good deal of time talking about the proliferation disputes between the United States and South Korea and Taiwan in the 1970s. And I'll conclude with some broader implications of this particular paper and the broader project. So the broader research questions which I'm trying to address in the project are these, when and why does the United States threaten to abandon its allies? And under what conditions are US policymakers more likely to use abandonment? Uh, implicit or explicit threats to terminate mutual defense treaties or otherwise dramatically uh, scale back the level of security assistance as a coercive tactic in disputes with an ally or with a client state. And the question which I specifically address in this paper is this, did the United States actually threaten to abandon the Republic of Korea and the Republic of China on Taiwan to coerce the termination of their clandestine nuclear weapons development programs in the 1970s. And my argument is as follows. Actually, the empirical evidence that officials in either the Gerald R. Ford or the Jimmy Carter administration issued abandonment threats to either South Korea or Taiwan in the period between 1975 and 1979 is weak at best. Moreover, given the overriding strategic objectives of the Ford and the Carter administrations in East Asia, threatening to abandon South Korea or Taiwan would have been self-defeating. And that overriding objective that policymakers in the Ford and the Carter and earlier the Nixon administrations had was to secure China as an ally of convenience uh, against the Soviet Union to seek a rapprochement with China and to enlist China as an ally of convenience. I see Mike Desch has his hand raised. Uh, Mike, is this a, 
quick question. We want to save questions for the end. It's up to you. I'll proceed and we'll, we'll get the questions at the end. So the overriding strategic objective was to secure an alliance of convenience with China against the Soviet Union. My argument is simply this, that the proliferation disputes that the United States had with its two allies in East Asia, South Korea and Taiwan, were inextricably linked to this broader problem of trying to, to seek a rapprochement and an alliance of convenience with the People's Republic of China. Normalizing ties between Washington and Beijing required maintaining the territorial status quo on the Korean Peninsula and the stability across the uh, Taiwan Straits, which in turn required the United States to maintain a certain level of leverage over both South Korea and Taiwan, even as the latter's diplomatic status was undergoing some dramatic changes. And the formal treaty of alliance between Taiwan and the United States uh, was coming to an end to be replaced by a congressional statute in 1979. But the broader argument is that these three, maintaining uh, stability on the Korean Peninsula and uh, across the Taiwan Straits, maintaining leverage over Seoul and Taipei, and normalizing relations between Washington and Beijing to secure that alliance of convenience were inextricably linked to one another. This project is very much an outgrowth of my last book, Defending Frenemies, uh, Alliance Politics and Nuclear Nonproliferation in U.S. Foreign Policy, which uh, Oxford University Press published in the summer of 19, uh, 2019. That book was an examination of how the United States bargained with various uh, allies and client states during the middle and latter part of the Cold War over the issue of nuclear nonproliferation. And it was sparked in part by an article that Frank Gavin had written uh, in International Security about five or six years ago, I guess it was 2015, arguing that nuclear nonproliferation was this core pillar of US foreign policy. And I argued in the book that actually, um, contrary to what Gavin was arguing, that the United States was always willing to go to great lengths to forestall the nuclear weapons aspirations of even its, its, uh, even its vulnerable allies, actually there was considerable variation in what the United States did. And that what explained that variation in the types of strategies the United States pursued vis-a-vis -vis its allies or clients that were aspiring to develop a nuclear weapon capability uh, was the changes or the anticipated shifts in the balance of power in the region where that client or ally happened to be located and the assessments that uh, U.S. policymakers were making about when threats to U.S. interests in those regions were likely to arise. Um, this is just a schematic from the book that illustrates the theory I developed, which I call somewhat unoriginally neoclassical realist theory, but it outlines uh, the causal chain which I'm positing, that it was regional power distributions uh, and leaders' assessments of when threats would arise over the short term or the long term, which drove their initial preferences about the types of strategies they would like to pursue, but that ultimately 
leaders still had, leaders in the United States still had to either mobilize support within Congress or diffuse opposition within Congress to their preferred strategies. And so sometimes the strategies which they pursued towards allies in particular regions looked a little different from what policymakers in these various administrations had wanted to do in the first place. Now, in this project, I deal with another question, which is the question of whether or not the United States actually threatened to abandon allies. But before I talk about that, I just want to show another figure from the past book. This is just a schematic or an illustration of different categories of bilateral alliances in which the United States or any other great power could be a party to. Uh, from at the one extreme special relationship alliances, very close, mutually supportive uh, relationships of long duration in which the interests of the two parties are closely aligned to what are called alliances of convenience. Uh, which tend to be of much shorter dif uh, duration between the parties, which are quite difficult to manage and uh, in which the two parties oftentimes have conflicting interests. In the book, I was dealing with a middle category called frenemies, uh, an asymmetric alliance relationship in which the strategic interests of the two parties didn't particularly align and one of the parties, generally the weaker one, uh, went out of its way to obstruct or obfuscate um, its intentions or otherwise act in ways contrary to the interests of its great power patron. So how do we get from this project to this question about alliance abandonment? How did this question arise? Well, in doing the research for defending frenemies, of course, I read quite a bit in the burgeoning literature on nuclear non-proliferation and on coercive diplomacy uh, between allies, especially between great power patrons and uh, their weaker clients or allies. And several scholars uh, make the claim that during the Cold War, uh, the United States under various administrations issued threats to different allies, both NATO allies and non-NATO allies, that the United States would cut security ties with them unless those states curtailed their development of a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, and generally, uh, these scholars assert that those threats of American abandonment were sufficient to induce the ally or client states compliance with American non-proliferation demands. And among the scholars who make uh, this claim that abandonment threats were used uh, and that were uh, these such abandonment threats were quite effective in inducing weaker states compliance are Alexander Debs and Nuno Montero. Uh, Frank Gavin makes this argument. Eugene Kogan uh, makes this argument uh, in his doctoral dissertation with respect to uh, Taiwan and South Korea and even TV Paul. Uh, makes a similar article uh, argument regarding the proliferation dispute between the United States and South Korea. That in each case, Washington policymakers or diplomats acting on behalf of Washington policymakers threatened to cut ties 
with uh, uh, allies or client states unless those states uh, ceased their objectionable nuclear proliferation activities. Much of that argument about abandonment threats by great power patrons, of course, draws on Glenn Snyder's conception of an alliance security dilemma. Uh, Snyder, uh, both in his 1997 book and in earlier articles, argued that basically in contracting alliances, states uh, face two fundamental risks. The first risk is entrapment. Uh, the risk of being dragged into an unwanted or unnecessary conflict with a third party uh, due to the reckless or the uh, aggressive behavior of one's ally. Uh, one gives an ally support uh, for fear of, of you know, uh, not being seen as a, or a reliable ally, not you know, making credible commitments, but the result is this moral hazard problem, whereby a reckless ally uh, basically sucks uh, its ally, including its great power ally, into an unwanted or an unnecessary conflict with a third party. The second risk is abandonment. Uh, and that is the risk of an ally not meeting the security contract or withholding critical aid to an ally in the event of a conflict with a third party. And all alliances uh, deal with some variants of this alliance security level, but it's particularly pronounced in asymmetric alliances. That is alliances between states in which there's a marked disparity in their relative power, but also in uh, their interests. Now, Snyder identified four ideal types of alliance abandonment, uh, both in his book and in his earlier writings. Um, the first would be a declaratory cancellation of the alliance contract between the parties. One of the parties says to the other that they're terminating their mutual defense treaty or mutual security treaty or the series of executive agreements that govern the, the security relationship. The second ideal type of alignment would be to remain unaligned or for one of the parties to actually realign with another state, including a former adversary. The third ideal type would be to renege on the alliance contract when the causes fedoras, that is the issue or scenario which brought the alliance into existence in the first place clearly arises. And the fourth and final one is simply failing to provide diplomatic support to an ally in a dispute with uh, its main adversary when the ally expects that support. So these were you know, the, the ideal categories that Snyder identifies for alliance abandonment. My research takes this in a slightly different direction and it builds in part on the work which I did uh, in the previous book. As I noted two or three slides ago, my argument focuses largely on US leaders' assessments of the distribution of power in particular regions and their assessments about when threats to US interests are likely to arise in those particular regions. But I haven't said a word about, well, what exactly is a region? 
What exactly am I talking about? And my definition of a region builds in part on TV Paul's definition of a region, which in turn builds in part on both geopolitics and to some extent constructivism. Uh, regions are basically imagined communities. These are clusters of states that are proximate to one another, that are interconnected in spatial, cultural, and ideational terms in a significant and a distinguishable manner. Uh, and the peoples and states in this region ought to conceive or ought to perceive of themselves as belonging to that entity. Uh, he offered this definition in an edited volume to which I contributed a chapter uh, almost a decade ago. Uh, so, you know, currently uh, people in uh, Washington, D.C., both in the present administration and in the previous administration, talked about the Indo-Pacific as being an integrated region. Uh, in the period in which I am concerned in this paper in the late 1970s, the region of concern was East Asia, uh, largely defined as China, the Korean Peninsula, uh, the Japanese archipelago, uh, and Taiwan as distinct from Southeast Asia and as distinct from Southwest Asia or the Indian subcontinent at that particular time. From the late 1940s up until the present day, US policymakers across different administrations, across different political parties have generally sought to revert two outcomes in regions outside of the Western Hemisphere. The first of these is containment failure. Evan Braden Montgomery defined containment failure as the risk of another great power, a rival great power, conquering a distant region in whole or in part. I would broaden that definition uh, to include the risk of a rival great power increasing its economic, political, or military penetration of a region whether that's via alliance formation with local states or arms transfers or economic assistance to that local state. The second outcome which US administrations have sought to avoid is access denial, a term which you know, is currently in the news quite a bit with respect to the Indo-Pacific. An access denial refers to the risk of a local actor or a rival great power withholding uh, critical resources or restricting the access of US military forces to a region. And this could be done by refusing to export a critical resource or impeding the passage or access uh, through a region for US forces or charging exorbitant rents for bases or evicting US forces and making it uh, very difficult if not impossible for the US forces to re-enter that region. So how does any of this relate to the proliferation disputes between the United States and South Korea and Taiwan in the 1970s? In the previous book, I argued that both proliferation disputes were actually the unintended consequence of the Nixon doctrine. Nixon and Kissinger came into office in January of 1969, inherited the Vietnam War, inherited the economic strain placed on the United States by the Vietnam War, and concluded that a radical reorientation of the United States force posture and uh, diplomatic uh, profile uh, in certain parts of the world were necessary. Uh, and the Nixon doctrine or the Guam doctrine uh, with respect to East Asia 
basically entailed three pillars. First, to extricate US forces from the Vietnam War via a negotiated settlement with North Vietnam as quickly as possible, but in a way, such a way so it didn't appear that the United States had been defeated. The second was to reduce US troop levels throughout not just Southeast Asia, but Northeast Asia as well. And the third was to seek a rapprochement with the People's Republic of China and to enlist China as an ally of convenience against the Soviet Union. Because by the late 1960s, China and the Soviet Union, which had been allied with each other during the first decade of the Cold War, had come to see each other as the principal threat to their security and had come perilously close to fighting a full-scale war in the summer of 1969. So extricating US forces from Vietnam, reducing US troop levels throughout Southeast and Northeast Asia, and enlisting China as an ally of convenience against the Soviet Union were the three overriding priorities of Nixon and Kissinger. And this was an objective, particularly the third one, which was shared by the next three US administrations of Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan. So what did this mean? How exactly did this precipitate these proliferation disputes? Well, as I mentioned, the second leg was to reduce the US troop presence in these regions. And so Nixon orders the withdrawal of the 7th Infantry Division, about 20,000 troops, from uh, the Korean Peninsula in 1971 over the objections of the South Korean government and its president, uh, Park Chung-hee. But 40,000 US troops remain. Now, the United States had stationed nuclear weapons and a smaller number of troops in Taiwan. Uh, the Nixon administration canceled the Taiwan Straits patrol, uh, and it began to draw down the troop levels in Taiwan, which had been inflated by the Vietnam War. So from 10,000 troops in 1969, uh, we went down to 3,800 troops by 1975. The second plank, or rather the third plank of the Nixon Doctrine was of particular concern to Taiwan and to, uh, to uh, South Korea, however. A rapprochement with China. Certainly Nixon Kissinger wanted a rapprochement with China, but they also sought to preserve some type of security commitment, US security commitment to Taiwan, even though they knew from 1971 onward that the United States would have to switch official recognition to the People's Republic of China in Beijing. Furthermore, they wanted to preserve the territorial status quo on the Korean Peninsula, that is a divided peninsula with the Republic of Korea south of the 38th parallel and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea north of the 38th parallel. And finally, they wanted to continue conventional arms transfers to both Taiwan and South Korea. But there were unintended consequences. The US drawdown, the outreach to China created fears of abandonment, potential abandonment in the future on the part of the Taiwanese government and the South Korean government. 
and South Korea's president and military dictator Park Chung-hee and Taiwan's premier and later president Jiang Jingguo authorized clandestine programs to develop nuclear weapons and long-range missiles in South Korea's case using existing civilian nuclear energy programs as the subterfuge. And both civilian nuclear energy programs had been beneficiaries of the Eisenhower administration's Adams for Peace program in the 1950s. The US ROK proliferation dispute was at its most volatile in the period between March of 1975 and January of 1976. And those dates are significant for reasons I'll talk about in a few moments. Project 890 was a clandestine nuclear weapons uh, development program and long range uh, missile development program overseen by the Agency for Defense Development, uh, an agency which was also charged with modernizing or actually creating uh, a, a defense industry for South Korea. The Korea Atomic Energy Research Institute, a civilian agency, was charged actually with acquiring reprocessing, uranium fuel reprocessing technology without IAEA safeguards from Belgian, French, and Canadian suppliers. And toward that end, the Kerry signed contracts with the government of Canada to uh, purchase two heavy water uh, reactors, uh, two CADU heavy water reactors, uh, and a NRX reactor. And most significantly, they also signed a contract with the Belgian firm Sangobian to acquire a uranium reprocessing facility. And this contract was signed in April of 1975. Now the CIA station at the US Embassy Seoul picked up on Kerry officials meetings with Belgian and Canadian and French uh, officials uh, and reported them to Washington in March of 1975 thus sparking the height of this proliferation dispute with Washington. The Ford administration's way of dealing with this dispute was fourfold. Pressure, threaten, press, and pledge. Pressure Canada and France to restrict nuclear technology exports, dual-use nuclear technology exports to South Korea. Threaten to suspend the 1972 U.S. ROK civil nuclear cooperation agreement and withhold a $252 million import or export import bank loan for construction of the Corey II nuclear reactor in South Korea. Press South Korea's government to ship its spent nuclear fuel to an as yet unbuilt regional processing facility somewhere in East Asia. And finally, pledge to stabilize US troop levels in South Korea, approximately 40,000, while also selling South Korea the F-4, F-5, and A-37 aircraft. So it was, as I term in the book, a hybrid strategy. There were coercive elements, the threat to suspend civil nuclear cooperation, but also very accommodative elements arms transfers and pledges to, to maintain conventional troop levels. So did the Ford administration actually threaten to abandon South Korea to coerce 
a cessation of its nuclear proliferation activities. Well, as I mentioned earlier, various scholars make this claim. They point to a cable which Secretary of State Henry Kissinger sent to the US Embassy in Seoul in April of 1975, uh, demanding that US diplomats deliver a demarque to Park Chung-hee. They also point to a, a statement that then Defense Secretary James Schlesinger made to Park in August of 1975 uh, during a visit to Seoul, uh, in which he said that if South Korea pursues uh, nuclear capability, it's going to completely uh, change uh, the United States relationship with South Korea. They point to a meeting which then Assistant Secretary of State Philip Habib had with Park and with uh, South Korean Prime Minister uh, uh, Kim Jong-il in December of 1945, December of 1975 rather. And finally, they point to uh, a statement that then Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld made to an unidentified South Korean official in May of 1976. The problem is that the documentary evidence that these threats were actually conveyed is extraordinarily weak. These claims are made based mostly on secondary sources or on interviews with former South Korean officials conducted decades after these events took place. Now, I will admit that the absence of evidence is not synonymous with evidence of absence. But I will submit that threatening to terminate the US ROK alliance, even if that threat had been made, would have been self-defeating for the Ford administration. And why do I make this claim? Well, first, recall that forging an alliance with con of convenience with Beijing was the overriding strategic objective of the Ford administration, just as it had been for the Nixon administration and just as it would be for the Carter and the Reagan administrations. However, the normalization of diplomatic ties between Beijing and Washington required stability on the Korean Peninsula. Now, Deng Xiaoping, who was deputizing for, um, for uh, uh, Zhou Enlai, who was Ill, terminally ill with cancer in December of 1945, told Gerald Ford to his face that Beijing really didn't have any objections to the United States maintaining a troop presence in South Korea. As a matter of fact, they saw it as being in China's interests because it put, in a sense, a lid on China's rogue ally, North Korea. If the Ford administration had threatened to terminate the US ROK alliance, a complete withdrawal of US forces and a cessation of arms transfers to Seoul would not only end what leverage Washington had over Seoul, it would also create a power vacuum on the Korean Peninsula, which is something that China did not want. So even if these threats had been made, which I argue there's no evidence to suggest that they were, it would not have been a particularly wise strategy for the Ford administration to pursue. What about Taiwan? Well, Taiwan, as usual, is a more difficult case. Taiwan's relationship with the Chinese mainland is, well, to put it mildly, 
complicated. And it has been complicated since September of 1949, when the People's Republic of China uh, came into existence and the Republic of China relocated to Taiwan. The height of the proliferation dispute between the United States and Taiwan lasted from July of 1976 to September of 1978. Contacts between Taiwanese officials from uh, the Chung Sun uh, Institute for Science and Technology and from the uh, uh, Institute for Nuclear Energy Research with representatives of the Dutch firm Comprino and the Belgian firm uh, Belgio Nucleaire to acquire reprocessing technology had come to the attention of the CIA in 1975 and 1976. And in 1975 and going into the summer of 76, uh, CIA and the US Embassy in Taipei became extremely concerned about reports about unsafeguarded reprocessing of spent uranium fuel uh, being done at the Taiwan Research Reactor, a reactor complex that had been built through the Atoms for Peace policy. Uh, and the Taipei Embassy sends reports to Washington uh, about both those contacts between Taiwanese and French and uh, uh, Dutch, uh, I mean, Dutch and Belgian officials and the TRR activities uh, to Washington in September of 1976. Now recall, this is happening four years, five years after Kissinger's secret trip to Beijing to meet with Zhou Enlai. And a little over three and a half years after Nixon's uh, trip to China and his long talks with Zhou Enlai and the Shanghai uh, communique in which the United States embraces the one China mantra. So by the time this proliferation dispute breaks out, the demise of the 1954 US-ROC mutual defense treaty was a foregone conclusion on both sides of the Taiwan Straits. Everyone knew the treaty was going to end. The People's Republic of China had detonated its first atomic bomb in October of 67, its first thermonuclear bomb in July of 1967. But by 1975-1976, the People's Liberation Army simply didn't have the naval and air capabilities to invade, let alone blockade Taiwan. Now, in response to uh, diplomatic approaches made by US diplomats and letters sent by senior Ford administration officials to Taipei, uh, Chiang, uh, Chiang Jingguo and his foreign minister, Frederick Chan and others repeatedly assert Taiwan had no plans to develop a nuclear weapon, that the activities of Taiwan research reactor uh, were not uh, related to nuclear weapons development, that US and IAEA inspectors would be allowed to visit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So deny, deny, deny. China had insisted that Washington sever diplomatic relations with Taipei, as well as end arms transfers to Taiwan as a precondition for normalization. And Taiwan's efforts to acquire a uranium reprocessing uh, capability 
would likely have been seen as provocative by, by Chinese leaders, even though Deng Xiaoping personally told Kissinger in December of 1975 that China had no plans to attack Taiwan in the near term. Now recall also that both the Ford administration and then later the Carter administration wanted to maintain a stable military balance across the Taiwan Straits in the near term. Maintaining that stable balance would require continued US arm transfers to Taiwan even after the 1954 mutual uh, defense treaty came to an end. And officials in the Ford and Carter administrations realized that, you know, Deng Xiaoping and other Chinese leaders would find US arms sales to Taiwan distasteful, but they could live with it because the United States had never sold weapon systems to Taiwan that, that supported power projection missions. These were always fairly limited arms sales. So what was the strategy which was pursued towards Taiwan's nuclear weapons program? Well, it was in many ways quite similar to the strategy that the Ford administration had pursued vis-a-vis South Korea two years earlier. Pressure, demand, threaten, and continue. Pressure Canada and Belgium to restrict dual-use technology exports to Taiwan. Demand the Taiwanese government allow international atomic energy and Department of Energy inspectors access to the Taiwan Research Reactor Facility and the CIS campus, threaten to terminate the US ROC civil nuclear uh, cooperation agreement unless the suspicious activities at the Taiwan Research Reactor cease, but continue to draw down US force levels in Taiwan but at the same time authorized the co-production of 48 F-5E aircrafts, as well as the sale of 72 Harpoon missiles and 12 launchers and 400 laser-guided bomb kits while the 1954 Mutual Defense Treaty was still in effect. And think about some way to continue to sell arms to Taiwan even after that treaty lapsed. So did the US threaten to abandon Taiwan? Well, other scholars claim that there were a number of threats. Some point to uh, a telegram which Kissinger sent to Leonard Unger, the last US ambassador to Taiwan, to deliver a demark to uh, Chang and to Shen in September of 1976. Uh, and that the message that Unger conveyed uh, constituted an abandonment threat. Montero and Debs, or Debs and Montero, claim that actually uh, NSC 339 uh, in September of 1976, National Security Council Paper 339, uh, ordering the continued withdrawal of US forces from Taiwan to no more than 1,400 by 31 December 1976, actually constituted a threat to completely abandon Taiwan. Uh, and some others point to, and the other being principally Eugene Kogan, points to a letter that uh, Carter Secretary of State Cyrus Vance sent to Zhang uh, in uh, September of, of, of 1978 regarding uh, 
unreprocessing regarding unsafeguarded reprocessing activities at the TRR. The evidence, however, is weak. There's no evidence to suggest that Carter administration or Ford administrations ever threatened to withhold arms transfers to Taiwan over unsafeguarded activities. They did threaten to terminate civil military, uh, civil, I'm sorry, nuclear cooperation, but they never threatened to terminate uh, arms transfers. Furthermore, the drawdown of US forces from Taiwan predated and was largely unrelated to the proliferation dispute. Moreover, it was expected on both sides of the Taiwan Straits. The US garrison on Taiwan, even at the height of the Vietnam War, was only about 10,000 troops. This was not a large force deployment. So where does that leave us? Where did Taiwan fit into this regional context? Well, the one China formula, which was outlined in the Shanghai communication of February of 1972 was deliberately ambiguous. And Zhou Enlai would press Kissinger almost comically to be more specific. And Kissinger would reply, you're trying to make this more specific. I'm trying to make it more ambiguous. Taiwan would not have been an obstacle to a rapprochement between the United States and China and to a US-China alliance of convenience against the Soviet Union, provided two conditions remained. Number one, Taiwan remained a non-nuclear weapon state. And second, Taiwan did not declare de jure sovereignty from the mainland. Now, the United States leverage over Taiwan was considerable because it was Taiwan's only source of conventional weapons. So why the United States would give up that leverage in this proliferation dispute would be rather puzzling, one would think. So what are the broader implications of this talk? Well, as I mentioned at the outset, this particular paper is one piece of what I hope will become another book project on the broader phenomena of alliance abandonment in US foreign policy. And I just addressed the third of the research questions, which I put up on the second slide. But here are what I think are some broader implications from this particular paper. The first concerns distinguishing alliance abandonment from question of great power retrenchment. Earlier, I talked about Glenn Snyder's four ideal types of alliance abandonment. And what was really going on here was not the United States threatening to abandon South Korea and Taiwan. It was rather Taiwan and, the, and South Korea reacting to the United States retrenching its strategic commitments. So in some ways, trying to figure out how alliance abandonment and alliance behavior fits into this broader question of great powers retrenching, or in some cases expanding, their diplomatic and military commitments uh, to states in a given region would be one broader implication of this line of research. Because right now, the distinction between abandonment and retrenchment, at least to me, is not clear. 
The second set of implications concern, you know, what Albert Hirschman called exit and voice opportunities in alliances. With respect to both the Republic of Korea and Taiwan in the 1970s, the United States was trying to renegotiate longstanding alliance contracts. These two alliances originated from the aftermath of the Korean War, as Victor Cha uh, argued uh, several years ago in his book, Power Play, both alliances had been designed specifically to enable policymakers in Washington to restrain uh, potentially reckless allies in Seoul and in Taipei from embroiling the United States in another land war um, in East Asia after, after the Korean War. Uh, but in the 1970s, the United States is trying to renegotiate the terms of those alliance contracts uh, and trying to draw down its forces in both, uh, in both countries, which of course raised questions in the minds of their leaders about U.S. commitments and levels of U.S. commitments going forward. Uh, and in both cases, weaker allies, uh, South Korea and Taiwan, which frankly didn't have other potential allies, nonetheless were able to exert some leverage on the United States and were able to moderate uh, some uh, or what they perceived to be some of the least distasteful aspects of the Nixon doctrine. So I think a second set of implications concerns, you know, how does the United States and how do weaker allies of the United States renegotiate these asymmetric alliance contracts and are the exit and voice opportunities that the two parties have as clear cut as we uh, might think in the abstract. And the third set of, of implications, a concern of uh, you know, what I emphasized in my previous books, uh, the importance of how US policymakers make assessments about regional power balances and about their time horizons uh, in shaping US foreign policy. US policymakers are concerned not just about the global distribution of power, but about the distribution of power in particular regions. And they're making threat assessments based on when they think particular outcomes are likely to occur. And we saw that in both of these proliferation disputes, estimates about you know, when China uh, might possibly acquire capabilities to, to upset the balance across the Taiwan Straits, or assessments about the distribution of conventional military forces on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and so, you know, these are three broad implications that I think come out of this research. So I know uh, there are several questions uh, and I wanna thank you very much for inviting me to speak and I look forward to uh, answering the questions and to continuing this discussion. Uh, okay. Thank you very much, Professor Taliaferro. Um, the I standard... will stop sharing right now. <laughs> Okay, the standard uh, rules apply for the discussion. Please um, raise your hand with the raise hand function under reactions. Um, but if that's if you have a normal question, if you have something that's on the point that someone's talking about right now, you can do a two fingered by using the thumbs up reaction, which is the lower right hand of your screen. The second thing is if you ask a question, please start your video um, so that we can have an actual conversation like real human beings. Um, we're going to turn this over to our, our um, First, most patient questioner, uh, Michael Desch. Mike, would you like to kick us off? 
Uh, thanks very much, Joe. Jeff, uh, great to see you. Uh, very much enjoyed reading the paper. Uh, I want to ask you, Jeff, do you have a Luca Brazzi problem, though, with your argument? You remember who Luca Brazzi is? I do not. Okay. Uh, he's a famous qualitative social scientist. He was also a character in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, The Godfather Part One. Uh, remember the wedding scene in The Godfather Part One? Michael Corleone is there with his fiancee, Kay, and they see Luca, who is a uh, very scary guy. Uh, the the uh, Don Vito's godson, Johnny Fontaine, you know, sort of the thinly veiled uh, Frank Sinatra character, is crooning away in the background. Um, and uh, Michael tells Kay, the story about Luca Brazzi uh, doing a favor uh, for the godfather for his godson, Johnny Fontaine. Johnny got in a uh, contract dispute with a band leader uh, and wanted to get out of it. And Don Vito, you know, and there's the whole business about how important the godson is, goes to this band leader and says, I'll give you $10,000 if you let uh, Johnny out of this contract. The band leader doesn't want to do it. So the next day, Don Vito and uh, Luca go back. And as Michael tells Kay, uh, Luca puts a gun to the band leader's head and he puts a contract down and he says, either we're going to get your signature on this contract or your brains are going to be on the contract. Uh, so the band leader signs the contract and gets a certified check for $1,000, not $10,000. Now, the paper trail for this whole thing would have been uh, the $1,000 cashier's check and the signed contract. Uh, the inextricable uh, role of Luca and the threat of violence would be found nowhere in the paper trail. Yet, of course, the, mo uh, the moral of the story is that would is re what really decided uh, this whole thing. Uh, the offer you can't refuse in the famous uh, uh, parlance of the Godfather. Don't you have a Luca Brazza uh, problem uh, with your evidence? You know, you wouldn't expect uh, to uh, see, uh, you know, the uh, most extreme threats uh, documented. Um, you know, that it, it, it's a matter of, uh, you know, uh, signals and informal conversations, not formal diplomatic demarches. If I could answer your question by, by uh, referencing a more recent post-pop uh, post, uh, cultural reference, uh, there is a, a scene in one of the many episodes of The West Wing uh, with Martin Sheen. Um, starring uh, as president was what was the what was his name Jeb Bartlett, uh, in which he's in a confrontation uh, with a uh, a member of the Senate, uh, and he says something, and the senator replies, "Is that a threat?" Uh, to which the president says, "I'm the president of the United States. I don't need to make threats," and then turns around and leaves. Yeah, there is this problem that, you know, who in his right mind is going to put that type of, of uh, 
explicit threat, if you do such and such, then these will be the consequences in writing. But is that also not the same problem that we face in all of our literature about deterrence, especially nuclear deterrence? Is that not also the same problem that we face in all of our literature about coercive diplomacy, that, or much of our literature about coercive diplomacy, that you know, they're trying to find empirical evidence of, of actual threats can be very, very tricky. My criticism of, uh, of these other scholars is that they're pointing to, in a sense, secondary sources, sometimes taken out of context, sometimes you know, uh, instances which happened months after the dispute had been resolved. For example, the claim that Schlesinger, uh, during his uh, 24 hour stay in Seoul, tells Park that you know, if, if South Korea had gone down the route of proliferation, then the entire you know, alliance would, would be undone. Well, that happened six months after Park Chung-hee had canceled the contract with, with uh, Sun Gobian to acquire the reprocessing plant. Uh, so is that really, you know, really, is that, is that sort of evidence that that, that, that that was, you know, that there was this coercive threat? So yes, I admit that there is that 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 what you call the Luke Luke Debrassi problem, but you know there's also this other issue which I brought up, which is that it really wasn't in the United States interests, from the perspective of either the Ford or the Carter administration, to completely cut ties with Taiwan and South Korea. Well, I'm I'm going to save I'm going to save that for arguing over dinner, which I, I'm very much looking forward to, but just. On the evidentiary uh, piece of it, um, I think you lulled yourself a little bit into a false sense of complacency um, by having, you know, very admirable, um, you know, uh, uh, set of sourcing, um, you know, for each of these cases. Um, and you said, I looked at, at you know, at a lot of uh, you know, of the internal memoranda and diplomatic archives and didn't see evidence of this. Uh, ipso facto, these other stories uh, are without foundation. But I, I actually think you've left yourself too low a bar uh, that really what you need to find in the sources are things that directly contradict those other stories that you know, Schlesinger wasn't in Seoul on the day that this thing, you know, that this conversation uh, was supposed to happen, things like that. But it, it doesn't seem to me that you have uh, nailed, you, that you found the smoking gun that puts these other stories to rest. All you've got is a lot of paper that doesn't say what these other stories say um, and, uh, you know, the belief uh, implicit that, you know, I think uh, you've got to do a better job of, uh, uh, of addressing explicitly um, that, you know, this is all there is to, and that's where the Luca Brazzi problem, I think, is central for you. Okay, thank you, Mike. All right, we're going to now turn to uh, Eugene Goltz. Question number two. Hello. Hi, how are you, Jeff? 
I'm fine. How are you? I'm well. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, so uh, I also, like Mike, was very interested in this and um, more than just general um, interest in alliances, um, I've actually been working with a, with a former student on a project on um, uh, withdrawing troops from allies. Uh, and particularly we've been focusing on as one of the one of the cases focusing on Korea, although um, you know it's interesting the two periods of withdrawing conventional forces are just before yours and just after yours, and um, you know I've tr not been that interested in the nuclear kinds of questions, but but I want to think about that as a context and and ask and ask you to talk more about the context of your two cases. Um, I, so this is the first question. I have two. The second question is more just a curiosity question, but this question is. I wonder about um, maybe it's just the comparability of the two cases, um, or maybe it's um, the the question is the the credibility of the alleged diplomatic, whether it's a threat of abandonment or not, or the alternative uh, diplomacy that you present. Um, so, um, in the Korea case. Um, the United States did withdraw a division of conventional forces before over Korean objections, which suggests that, you know, there should be some credibility to a U.S. threat to withdraw, if you believe in a, you know, historical past actions kind of way of establishing credibility. But just after this, in the Carter administration, the U.S., you know, Carter made it a campaign promise and really put serious effort into withdrawing additional conventional forces from South Korea, all in the context of not abandoning. Like he was very explicit that he was not abandoning the alliance, right? So air cover was going to stay. We were going to promise to flow conventional forces back in, in a contingency. It was, it was, um, it was very explicitly not abandonment, but Carter was unable to make it stick. So the South Koreans objected, they engaged in a lobbying campaign in domestic politics in the United States. Um, there was a dramatic civil military relationship problem in the United States where the general who was in charge of US forces Korea, you know, uh, came out publicly and said, Carter, you can't do this and ended up you know, getting fired and then testifying before Congress. But basically the Koreans won, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, given that they could, you know, win, they could roll the US president um, when the president's threat was a lesser threat than complete alliance abandonment, you know, how could a threat of alliance abandonment possibly have been credible? Like what, what's the, you know, how could this be real? On Taiwan, reverse on Taiwan, let me, let me finish for a sec, Jeff. On Taiwan, it's the reverse problem, which is, as you say, you say everybody knew the alliance was going to end. Well, I'm not sure everybody knew the alliance was going to end, but the alliance did end. And if everybody did know, how could reassurance of Taiwan have possibly been credible if you don't get the bomb, we will not abandon you, right? Like, 
given that context, like you sort of say the Taiwanese believed us, but why, how, how could that work? And then the last little bit, so just comparing your two cases, they seem to have opposite credibility problems and maybe the cases are not comparable given the level of power that Taiwan had compared to South Korea in the alliance relationships or in the domestic US political environment. And then the last thing is just a little addendum. I'm curious, I, I don't know the terms of the 1954 US-Taiwan Treaty well enough, but people whine these days that the United States can't leave NATO or can't kick Turkey out of NATO because there's no um, terms of the treaty that permit ever ending the alliance, right? There's terms for adding people to the alliance, but not for taking anyone out. Was there a, an article of the US-Taiwan Treaty that allowed the US to terminate this treaty? And um, you know, I can't imagine these legal terms actually matter in these relationships, but, but they seem to matter in the way we talk about NATO today. And so did this come up in the Taiwan conversations or you know, if that, if that was put into the 1954 treaty, how did it get into the 1954 treaty? Can you just tell me more about the, the exit capabilities from the treaty? Anyway, thanks very much. Thanks, G. All right, the, let me ask, let me answer your last question first. Yes, the text of the 1954 uh, US ROC Mutual Defense Treaty was written in such a way so that either party could terminate the treaty with one year's notice, which is essentially what the United States did. You know, in, in December of 1979, uh, you know, Leonard Unger what got a cable from, from Cyrus Vance saying, you are to tell Chiang Kai-shek that uh, we are terminating the treaty. We're going to switch diplomatic recognition from the Republic of China on Taiwan to the People's Republic of China effective uh, January 1st, 1980, and that in one year from that date, the US ROC Mutual Defense Treaty will come to an end. So there was that provision, and there was a similar provision in the, uh, the uh, Mutual Security Treaty between the United States and the Republic of, China, and the, and the Republic of Korea. Uh, I think, you know, what I was uh, trying to argue uh, earlier, what I did argue in the book, was that you know, the Carter administration, Jimmy, I shouldn't say the Carter administration because it was very much Jimmy Carter's fixation with withdrawing all US ground forces from Korea, meaning basically the second infantry division, the remaining 40,000 troops uh, was a debacle on multiple fronts. Not only was he opposed by uh, Park Chung-hee's government uh, he was also strongly opposed by most Democrats in Congress, as well as the uniformed military and the Joint Chiefs, as well as political appointees uh, in the DOD and in the State Department. Uh, so that sort of unraveled under, under its own pressure. Uh, Korea was seen as more strategically uh, uh, important uh, than uh, Taiwan at that point for, for, for the United States. Uh, you can make a very good argument that in some respects, these two asymmetric alliances were not comparable because the degree of asymmetry between them was not, was not, um, 
was not uh, identical. Um, you know, Taiwan had no defense industry at all. South Korea was building a nascent one. Uh, there was a larger US troop presence, there always had been a larger US troop presence uh, in South Korea than there had ever been in Taiwan, even during the height of the Vietnam War buildup. Uh, you know, Taiwan was well, protected from China by the Taiwan Strait. Uh, South Korea was always vulnerable to North Korean uh, artillery shells coming from the DMZ or coming over the DMZ. And moreover, various North Korean provocations in 1968, notably the Blue House Raid, illustrated just how vulnerable uh, South Korea was to, to, to North Korea. I think that that, that, that is you know, a credible argument. Your you know, question, how could US reassurance of Taiwan have been credible? That's a good question. And one of the things that you know, I learned in the past book and doing the research for the past book, and which really fascinates me, uh, is that uh, US allies, not just in East Asia, but in other regions of the world, uh, Pakistan, uh, Israel, are incredibly fearful that the United States might at some point in the future abandon them. Absolutely petrified that the United States might abandon them, even if the United States doesn't deploy large numbers of troops to their territory, even if the security relationship largely consists of intelligence sharing and conventional arms sales. Uh, because these are states that are in very volatile regions and oftentimes have no strategic depth uh, whatsoever. Um, and one of the things that, you know, sort of animated me to go down this, this route of examining alliance abandonment as a, as a potential third single author book project is this discrepancy. This discrepancy between this emerging conventional wisdom in the nonproliferation alliance management literature, which states that, well, the United, you know, the United States has threatened to abandon various allies, both NATO allies and non-NATO non -NATO allies uh, over the years, you know, in a variety of disputes, including nuclear proliferation disputes, and generally it's worked. With, you know, the empirical record that I as a casual observer saw during the last administration, which you have a president who publicly, you know, talks about the obsolescence of NATO and about South Korea and Japan needing to, to reimburse the United States for all the security that our forces are providing them, and who rattles, you know, uh, allied leaders and, uh, you know, commentators on both sides of the Atlantic and the Pacific with this paradox. Does the United States ever drop allies to begin with? Does the United States ever really abandon allies? When I think about the times in which the United States has actually cut security ties to allies, just you know, off the top of my head, they've generally involved instances in which a particular regime is on the brink of overthrow and there's not anything the United States can do to change it, Mubarak in January of 2011, or the ally in question is on the brink of a catastrophic military defeat, South Korea, 19, I mean, not South Korea, South Vietnam, 1975, 
or the Kurds. Um, but other than that, you know, has the United States ever really cut security ties with anybody? And I'm hard pressed to think of an instance in which we have. Now, again, I mean, that's anecdotal. That's not scientific in, in any way. But, you know, my hunch is that in part, the United States forges these alliances not so much to balance against power or threat, but as a means of maintaining control. And by cutting ties or even threatening ties, the United States would be giving up leverage. And so U.S. leaders might be loath to actually threaten to do this. Moreover, despite the fact that just about every Secretary of Defense since Charles Wilson in the 1950s has complained bitterly about how the European members of NATO are not spending nearly enough on collective defense, has the United States ever really considered withdrawing from NATO? Really considered scaling back its troop commitments to NATO as a way of trying to coerce the NATO allies to augment their defense spending? I don't think we have. Moreover, I think the Europeans, and again, this is getting way off the topic of this paper. Moreover, I think that the Europeans know that we wouldn't do that. So we really have, in a sense, a double moral hazard situation. Free riding allies, but also uh, you know, a great power patron that is so invested in maintaining these alliance ties that it can't in a sense, you know, part of what, uh, or at least half of uh, Schneider's alliance secu uh, security dilemma is extremely muted, if not completely non-existent in certain alliances. I realize that's a very long rambling uh, answer to your question, Gene. I hope I answered parts of it. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff there, Jeff. Thanks. Um, I mean, so I think you're I think you're clearly right about we haven't abandoned NATO we haven't threatened to abandon NATO to encourage them to up their defense spending. We have I think seriously thought about pulling back from NATO in the 1960s in the in the multilateral force negotiations. I mean but it wasn't for purposes of getting them to spend more. Mm -hmm. So it was a different it was a very different dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if it counts that we abandoned our alliance with France in the 1790s. That's the that's the only case I can think of, um, yeah. But I'm happy yeah. about that case. So anyway, whatever. Thanks, and, Jeff. That was interesting. That was regime change. <laughs> All right. Well, to be continued, I'm sure. Um, we're going to move on to Fritz Heinzen uh, with our third question. Play ball. Uh, All right. Very good. I I uh, I enjoy very much your paper, and I, I'm I'm going to way cut uh, cut back what I was going to say because it's pretty much what Gene had said. I was writing on Korea contemporary, uh, contemporaries to all of this. And in that period of January, let's say January to, to, to August of 1977, it's fascinating. It's the sort of, let's say there's a disconnect. And I actually think the disconnect reinforces your argument. And that's this, is that looking at the nature of this debate, about withdrawing the two brigades, it was, um, uh, what was it, NSC 12 or whatever, which said, I think finally two brigades, let's pull two 
and how that so blew up. And you had, and, and, I, and I'm going through my mind, my papers, all these papers are, are um, boxed away in storage, but I sort of remember it was, this decision is bad because it didn't follow proper protocol, proper procedure. It didn't involve military consultation. It's in the aftermath of the disaster in Vietnam. All these kinds of things. I don't remember nuclear coming up at any point. And, and the fact that um, Gene says he's got a student working on this, I'd be interested if, as they work through this, if they see the word nuclear. I did happen to have still some of my paper, some of the New York Times papers from then. There was no mention of nuclear again. It is, the fear is there's an, an, a conventional assault coming across, but nobody is talking about the North, or I'm sorry, the South Koreans going nuclear. And this debate got so intense, and a lot of people, I don't think, remember just how significant it got. Sing Lao, of course, Sing Lao later wrote a book and got TV time and all that. Sing Lao, he was one of the key figures disciplined, but Vesey, even Vesey was not allowed to testify before Congress. And, and how this ended up playing out and, and the, um, I guess, Klaus Witzian friction uh, slowing down this decision. It was the fastest FOIA I ever had. I had a DOD phone book. I called the person responsible for Korea in the Pentagon because I'd heard about a, a, a secret um, paper that had been written on the decision to withdraw forces from Korea. I called, I said, I'd like to see this. He said, I'm sorry, you know, all top secret, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I, well, I'll file a FOIA. And he said, I would encourage you to do that. And I think I must have at that point faxed the FOIA. Within a week, I had that thing stamped all over, declassified, declassified. I, I've never seen a FOIA move that fast. So the military clearly was against this and would have had plenty of opportunity and others, the civilians, as you pointed out, Sam Nunn, Hubert Humphrey, uh, everybody opposing it, could have mentioned a nuclear component or a nuclear dimension to this. Uh, Korea uh, had signed, I guess, NPT at that point, or the assembly had agreed, passed it, but nobody talked about Korea leaving the NPT. Nobody talked about any of this kind of a thing. So in fact, I, I really do think that that period of 77 reinforces your argument. And, and that's why in the end, uh, that had a lot to do with why I tend to agree uh, you're, you're correct in, in your assessment. Thank you. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating because I had also studied you know, that period, talked about it in, in chapter, chapter five of my last book, Defending Frenemies, and had gotten the papers of William Gleistein. And it, just, it was just absolutely gone to the Carter Library, and it was just absolutely fascinating the way that, that, that you know, this is a campaign pledge which Carter made, and he tries to impose it on the bureaucracy, and it just unravels in, you know, short order. And, I mean, basically, it's Jimmy Carter against everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Um, it, was, it, was, it was astounding, and it was one of the most harebrained, ill-considered you know, uh, uh, things that he did as as president. And he was opposed by just about everybody um, in doing this. But what's interesting is that, yeah, Park had canceled the reprocessing plant contract with Sangobian in February of 1976. So, you know, the Project 870 exists 
until December of 76. And the missile design unit within uh, the Agency for Defense Development continues at a relatively low level staffing until uh, 1981, 82. But basically, you know, there, there isn't a concerted effort to, to try to either acquire reprocessing technology from external suppliers or to develop it indigenously after that. So it was, it was a fascinating, fascinating period. And that was actually, I mean, 70, 77 was actually the nadir of the US ROK, uh, ROK alliance with you know, one of the most contentious uh, presidential summits in diplomatic history between Jimmy Carter and Park Chung-hee. Uh, actually, at, at one point, I was considering using a, a photo that I had gotten of uh, Park and Carter actually sitting there glaring at each other uh, as the cover of my bike. decided to go with the cover of, of Reagan and Zia O'Hawk uh, instead, because that was a more dysfunctional relationship. Yes, that one. <laughs> no, I, was writing that. I was actually choosing that during the first year of the Trump administration, so. <laughs> no, very good. That, uh, no, you, you've, you've picked uh, a, a couple of interesting countries. And as you point out in your paper, there aren't a lot to choose from when it comes to to this kind of to the nuclear proliferation issue. No, I mean, um, fortunate that, we, that there aren't that many. Yes. As citizens, as social scientists, it's a problem. But as citizens, I'm very happy that, you know, there have only been 29 states that have ever had dedicated nuclear weapons programs since 1945. And we only have nine nuclear armed states today. So I, I can live with that. <laughs> and then this then is the basis for another book. This would then be a basis of another book. I mean, not not specific to proliferation, but of this broader question of you know, that I've had. That you know, the U.S. allies are incredibly fearful of the United States pulling out of with of withdrawing of of retrenching or abandoning. Uh, but yet, in the instances in which the United States, I, I suspect, and I should say, it's a hunch. It's not even a form, formal uh, formally articulated hypothesis. The instances in which you know, the United States has actually threatened to cut ties with an ally. I'm, I'm struggling to think of an instance. So is, is your project in the end, will it start from, let's say, the beginning of U.S. history up to the present? It would start with the post, post-World War II. Oh, you're going to start with post-World War II. Okay. Post-World War II, with this network of, 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 you know, alliances in different regions. Um, but that's to be determined. Okay. That's not the exact scope of it. This was just a piece that came out of the previous project. So now, very good then. Good luck with it. Um, the, the only other thing I'll quick throw out is, I don't know if you saw, and I'm thinking it was maybe about three years ago, parameters. One of the folks at Center for Military History, I, I, oh, I'm trying to think of who it was. Um, he went back and he looked at this decision in 77. And again, just how much opposition and that Carter, it was Carter versus everybody, that type of thing. That actually was a, a pretty decent piece at pulling everything together. I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I recommend it to anybody who's working in that field. I, I might have cited it, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't recall. But it does, it does sound, it does sound familiar. A Center for Military History. And I think maybe, maybe it was Etzacorn or something. I'm trying to remember. But yeah, it, that piece sort of pulls together. It was a nice, it was nice after 
decades to pull it together. And I thought that, that piece did a halfway decent job of, of pulling this whole uh, fiasco, uh, fiasco together. And as I remember reading it at that time, I don't think the word nuclear ever once ever, ever entered the article. It never did, really. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, we don't have much time left, um, but fortunately we don't have a lot of questions left. So I wanna exercise the chair's prerogative and get you to non-committally speculate on using your model to predict who the United States is gonna abandon first. <laughs> who the United States is going to abandon first? Well, certainly the Biden administration has been busy trying as best it can to mend uh, alliance ties with various states uh, and has picked up on the Trump administration's embrace of the whole free and open Indo-Pacific concept. Um, you know, of course, it's made all the more complicated by the fact that the coronavirus pandemic is a global pandemic and it's affecting uh, states around the world, including right now, especially India. Um, you know, one of the four members of, of the Quad. I think one of the dilemmas that the Biden administration is going to face uh, in trying to come up with, well, they're gonna, it's going to face many dilemmas in trying to come up with a, a way to, to a counter China in the Indo-Pacific. You know, in, in some uh, settings, I've argued that, you know, the, the goal of containment failure averting containment failure in the Indo-Pacific is futile because to the extent containment was ever tried, it has already failed. If you look at how I, how I have redefined the term containment failure, China has already expanded its influence uh, beyond Northeast Asia and into South Asia and into Sub-Saharan Africa uh, and East Africa. Uh, so you know, the real objective for the United States is how do you avert access denial? And especially how does one avert access denial? Uh, how does one avert, I'm sorry, that was the Grubhub driver. So good, dinner has arrived and it's on my doorstep. Uh, it's fortunate to live in a neighborhood once you have lots of restaurants nearby. Um, how does one avert access denial in a region uh, in which, sorry, the, uh, a region or in a scenario in which uh, number one, uh, uh, China is not bent on territorial expansion in the same way that the Soviet Union was. Uh, it is ex expanding its influence through salami tactics, especially with respect to territorial claims in the South China and the East China Sea, but also through economic means. So what does it mean for the United States, you know, to forge an alliance, uh, a counterbalancing alliance to China, given the nature of the threat is different. Second, how do you forge an effective alliance against China, which unlike the former Soviet Union, is not only thoroughly integrated in the global economy, it's the second largest economy on the planet, and could very well surpass the United States, at least in GDP, which is a problematic measure. Uh, in the next uh, next five to 10 years. Moreover, how do you counter a China that is economically interdependent with all of your major allies? And how do you do this given the geopolitical reality for states like Japan and South Korea 
and the Philippines and India, the geopolitical reality that, well, China is much closer to them physically than the United States. How do you do this? I don't know, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. I would say that you know my model does appear to explain certain aspects of what the Biden administration is doing with respect to the Indo-Pacific in that you know, they are very concerned about shifts in the balance of power and they're concerned about time horizons. But how that's gonna translate through domestic politics, I think it's gonna be a, a very interesting um, set of dilemmas for the Biden administration, given how divided this particular current Congress is and the likelihood that you know, they may not, the Democrats may not have a majority in either chamber after, after January of 2023, how that's going to affect US policy. We'll see. All right. Well, I have enough sense not to stand between a person and their dinner, so I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up and thank you copiously uh, for your wonderful talk today, and thank, thank everyone for another wonderful semester of NDISC talks. Thank you for joining us. Um, but please join me in giving a round of applause, albeit virtually, for Professor Talia Farrell. Thank you. All right. Good night, everybody. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap.